Blog Talk Radio. August 30th, 2017 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of the ideas behind American exceptionalism. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and welcome to everyone who's joining me live over here in the Blog Talk Radio chat room. If you go over to the blog at don'tletitgo.com, you'll see the title of today's show, The Consequences of Cowardice. And that title comes from a quotation that was attributed to Ayn Rand from Leonard Peikoff, and it's in the introduction to a book, which I highly recommend, called Letters of Ayn Rand. Uh, Michael Berliner, Dr. Michael Berliner, he collected all of the correspondence from Ayn Rand, edited it and organized it and put it together in a very interesting to take in form. And so if you were wondering what Ayn Rand thought about a variety of things and what her correspondence to people during her life was, then you can check out that book. I used the letters for Ayn Rand in pulling a lot of quotations for the Ayn Rand bot, that account that I run on Twitter. And this is one of the quotations. So it's in the introduction, like I said, that Leonard Peikoff wrote. And he's talking about... Ayn Rand's approach to her career and and the integrity, you know, the virtue of integrity as practiced by her in in her career with respect to her work, with her her writings. And he said that she refused to sell out to any establishment to contradict her own conclusions or to compromise her work. And Peikoff quotes her as saying, I am not brave enough to be a coward I see the consequences too clearly. And this quotation came to my mind this morning when I was looking at some stuff about Antifa out there on Twitter. It turns out that the mayor of Berkeley is warning that if these conservative speakers come to UC Berkeley in the fall, that Antifa is going to riot And, you know, while he's for free speech, there's issues of public safety, and he hopes that Berkeley cancels these events. Very, very cowardly, right? You know, Antifa has shown their propensity to riot. We're going to talk a little bit about that and and stuff. So that, you know, I I thought about it in connection with that. But there's another story out there that is at least purporting to become urgent, and that's the issue of North Korea. And I also thought of this quotation and this idea of the consequences of cowardice. 
in connection with North Korea, because as I understand it, the predicament that we're facing with North Korea right now is in part due to cowardice that we demonstrated in dealing with North Korea in the past. And that's the topic that I want to start off this hour with. And for that purpose, I'm very pleased to welcome back Jean-Luc Spezza, who's been on this show before talking about North Korea. And Jean-Luc is a PhD candidate at the International Institute of Korean Studies, which is part of the University of Central Lancashire in the UK. And he's also a founding contributor at North Korean News. So I'm pleased to welcome now, assuming our connection is good. Jean-Luc, are you there? I am here. Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Hi. Thank you for joining us this evening, your time. How are you? Very welcome. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure. I'm fine, thanks. A little bit tired yeah. from all the writing, but okay. That's why we want to get you at the beginning of the show, because I know it's already 9 o'clock your time or something. So thank you for joining us. So you've been working, finishing up your Ph.D. dissertation. Does your Ph.D. dissertation topic have anything to do with the current crisis that we're facing with North Korea? Uh, well, a little bit. It, it is about some uh, aspects of dealing with North Korea from the perspective of international aid. So, in a way, yes, because um, that's one of the things that uh, saved North Korea in the early 1990s when the world might have had a chance to see regime change. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that this would have been a painless solution, uh, but perhaps things would have gone in a very different way from where we are now. Right. Now, I saw an exchange on Twitter this morning, and then everything got buried on Twitter because I had the great blessing of being retweeted by Ben Shapiro. Whenever that happens, my feed just blows up. But you <laughs> were you were talking with someone on Twitter about the fact that, you know, I mean, Trump goes out there and he tweets this morning, I think irresponsibly, right? You know, he says... We've been, uh, you know, paying aid and extortion and uh, paying extortion money and, and talking. And now the yeah. time for talking is over. You know, talking won't work anymore. It's so vague, right? He leaves open. Maybe we're still going to pay extortion money or, you know, what are we going to do? Who knows? And then he says, I'm off to Missouri for a tax rally. And he doesn't tell you what he's going to do. He just lays that out there. Not very helpful. Um, and. So you were telling this other person on on Twitter that a nuclear North Korea is something that basically we're stuck with due to mistakes that we've made in the past. And I believe you cited 1953 as a particular turning point. And then you also talked about the 1990s. So what was it that happened in 1953 that got us where we are now? Uh, Well, let let me take a step back. The tweet that I replied to was about... um, military options being considerably reduced at this point. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that uh, what Steve Bannon said, uh, or is presumed to have said in an interview shortly before being fired, is absolutely true. There is no military option with the DPRK at this point. That has been no military option for a long time. Since 1953, basically, at the end of the Korean War, when the U.S. Uh, substantially, uh, the, the conflict uh, was halted by an armistice. There is no peace treaty as of today. 
But what happened in geopolitics is, is that the U.S. basically lost half of Korea. It lost North Korea for good. And there, was, there was no chance after that to, for another military intervention of any kind. And certainly with uh, China becoming a nuclear power and the world changing, there has never been one. Uh, war on the peninsula because of um, the way uh, things are set up in geopolitics and Russia and China being there. What is just simply not an option. It is not an option now, of course, because now North Korea is a nuclear state. And even if it weren't, as, a, as we discussed uh, last time that I was on the show, mm-hmm. um, the first to suffer terrible retaliation would be Seoul, and you would have millions and millions of people dead within hours. So... Again, Steve Bannon was right. He said, unless somebody shows me that part of the equation where millions of people do not die within one hour of an attack to North Korea, there is no military option. They got us. Uh, I think by us, he meant United States. So, So basically you're saying that unless we're willing to have those deaths occur, then we basically are stuck paying extortion money to North Korea forever. Uh, it's not extortion money. It's, it's, it's a little bit more complex than that. Um, the U.S. has been very generous with North Korea as with other countries that do not particularly love the U.S. Uh, Somalia is one. Uh, but the, the U.S. in general, through USAID, is a very generous donor in either... Um, unilateral or multilateral aid programs. Um, that is detached somehow from the inter, from domestic politics in the U.S. But the problem with North Korea is that there was a little time window of time in, in the beginning of the 90s when the regime was bound to collapse. It, it would have certainly collapsed if mm-hmm. international aid had not stepped in. Now, the problem is that if the international community has said no to North Korea back then, you would have had uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of people dying from starvation. We're talking about innocent people that have nothing to do with, with the regime whatsoever. Well, right, but I mean, so, so you're, you're saying we could have let it collapse and then all of these people would have died, but wouldn't the other option well, be... We'll aid, but we'll make a condition of aid regime change. Yeah, well, that's been one of the options discussed. And the the problem is that, again, uh, I think we discussed this the last time. The U.S., various U.S. administrations never really had a lot of expertise on North Korea, surprisingly, because they have been involved in a war with the country. So, for example, in 94, uh, uh, during the Clinton administration, um, the U.S. had something called the Agreed Framework, by which uh, they made a deal with North Korea after getting very, very close to the conflict. Uh, uh, then Jimmy Carter went in, and then they had the Agreed Framework, which basically said that North Korea would agree to freeze his nuclear program um, in return for live water reactors, uh, provisional energy uh, assistance, and all the rest of it. 
Um, and that, it turns out, uh, and this are, is known to all the scholars of North Korean affairs, uh, the U.S. made that deal uh, hoping that uh, the regime would collapse in two or three years. They really mm. thought that North Korea would not have, have lasted more than two or three years because it was going through a series of natural disasters and famine and, and the economy had broken down. So they really thought, well, who cares? Like, they're not going to be here by the end of the 90s. And instead, they were. Um, so that... Now, was, now, do you think... Well, I'm not um, that you can let it start, though, but with hope we have to be clear on that. Some people said, well, why are we helping a country that hates us, like, that hates the United States so much? Mm -hmm. Well, right. you do that because the United States at that time, it depends on who's in power in the United States, but the United States at that time was under Clinton, and it is one of the major donors internationally, if not the major donor. And so, it, it, un, unless you withdraw from all these or organizations, the UN and all the protocols that, that uh, prescribe that you provide aid, then somehow you're involved in providing aid to all the countries because it's humanitarian aid, so to speak, and it, 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 it's supposed to go beyond political disputes, so to speak. Right, but the, you know, the whole thing is, is that this aid would not be necessary if they would allow freedom in North Korea. I think as you put in, you know, I put a link to your older article from May of this year into the program notes yeah. at, at the blog. And in there you talk about, I think it's 1000 per year is the average income in North Korea, or is it the poorest? I can't remember if that was an average. And then you said yeah, in Seoul it's 30000 a, a little less than 1000 yeah, in, in, in the GDP or, or GNP, whatever you wanna, want want to measure, in in the DPRK, it's pretty much the same that it was in 1985, less than a thousand dollars per year. Uh, it, right. it went really down in the 90s, and now it, it has uh, gone uh, back up. But still, it's a it's a it's a terribly poor country. Um, and instead, South Korea went from being less than that uh, in the 70s to being higher than Italy now. Right. So right. of course, of course, the, the main the, the main unique source of North Korea's problem is North Korea. Yeah. The collateral exactly. problem that is that all all the the all the the, the multilateral organizations that deal with North Korea, say the UN, with, one, with, with the left hand, they provide sanctions and they want to punish. And then this very same UN, with the right hand, provides aid on humanitarian grounds. And it keeps the right, two things but, but separate. So, so I, could, I could see some reason for that, right? Because you have this idea that there are the innocent people who are under the boot of the communists regime in North Korea and you want to help them as directly as possible and the sanctions would be directed in such a way as to help you know make the regime collapse under its own weight right so i could i could see why you'd want to maybe try that route um 
you know, in, in terms of Actually, aid on no. one hand on no. the, and the, the sanctions on the other. But you think they're not directed that way? They're not they're not targeted properly. No, see, the, the sanctions the, the sanctions don't work. Uh, okay. Unfortunately, they, they they don't work because if had they worked, North Korea would not have been able to build what it has built. Uh, and on the other hand, humanitarian aid is is specifically uh, conceived to be separate from politics. So you give it to even the worst regimes on the planet because you say uh, you, I mean the UN, says, well, we're helping the people. We we simply will not pe- let people starve to death, no matter what kind of government they're under. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, it's a very tragic choice that you have to make, if you will, a very bold one or a brutal one. But after 40 years of North Korea being there and military options not being on the table, uh, one option, and somebody discussed that back then in the 90s, there was somebody, there were some parts uh, at the UN and and the US that, that wanted to second humanitarian aid to regime change and, and say, well, we'll, keep, we'll provide food, but uh, you, you, you have to change where you are. And but that didn't happen. And, and that would have been something that probably would have required a bit of bravery, right? You know, to actually say, okay, we're going to tie this, you know, this, this altruistic aid you know that we're we're giving, or that you could say, okay, it's charity. Maybe United States could afford to give it. Then uh, we're going to tie this aid to this condition of changing the nature of the political regime to one that doesn't actually harm its citizens, right? Yeah. Well, they what they did in the U.S. Um, there's plenty of material from Congress about this. Uh, is, the U.S. is one of those donors, uh, like all major donors on, on the planet, that they they tend to subordinate the provision of aid to their strategic interest. So the problem mm-hmm. at the beginning is that the U.S. has some geopolitical strategic interest on the Korean Peninsula. Mm-hmm. Um, if had they let North Korea collapsed, uh, withdrawing all aid, or had they been able to persuade the UN to not to provide any aid, North Korea would have collapsed. That so, have so what was concern. what was the strategic the interest? South what, Korea. What was so the strategic interest was South Korea. The strategic interest is South Korea, a, a, a foot on the Korean Peninsula, is a pivot to mainland Asia. Uh, the U.S. is mm-hmm. its main ally in Asia, in Japan, and that it has right, the Philippines. But, so, and, but, but South Korea is terribly important. Right, but if, but if I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying that the reason that Congress or the president in the 90s didn't tie this condition of a regime change to the aid was something to do with South Korea, but I don't get how the logic of it works. So if we cut off aid to North Korea, are you saying because there would be this huge flow of refugees to South Korea and that would impact South Korea negatively? Okay. Okay. The entire peninsula would collapse. Okay. So first of all, they did provide humanitarian aid on humanitarian grounds. Back then, uh, under the Clinton administration, that was seen as the right thing to do. And, second, and, and maybe they didn't think communism was that bad, right? Maybe they maybe they thought communism was <laughs> as, as bad as well, you and I think it is. There's another thing. There's, 
as I said, there's there's the uh, there's a part of intellectual uh, intellectuals and academia in in the U.S. and elsewhere that yeah they recognize that North Korea is a, a bad country so to speak, but it opposes they they see it as, as a bastion of anti-colonialism and upholding revolutionary values or something like that. Uh, Hell, the New York Times probably fight. sees it. Forget forget intellectuals, Jean-Luc, New York Times, right? New York Times has been well, running now, a slew of articles that are pro-communist. From what I, I'm seeing now at domestic level in the U.S., you guys have something like the Chinese Cultural Revolution going on, full-blown, and uh, that's more boring to me than North Korea. I, I still think it's fringe right now. But you are seeing a lot of it in the media, certainly. And if you hang out on Twitter, you're seeing quite a bit of it. And, yeah, yeah we're going to talk well, some, some about that later. Yeah. So, but but here, so, the, so here's, not, here's yeah. the question. Here's the question for you. So we did not do what needed to be done. The thing that, we, you know, we could have been courageous. We could have been brave. In the 90s, at least, uh, if not back in the okay. 1953, do the right thing. But now we're suffering these consequences, right? Because now the situation right. is, is even more dire because we have a, a nuclear, potentially very dangerous North Korea, yes? Well, Amy, I don't know how many people from the left <laughs> listen to the show, but uh, they would be furious if you, if we frame it as, U.S. wasn't brave enough to let millions of North Koreans starve. I don't wish for anybody to starve. Of course. Well, and the question is, would they? Would they really? Would they really starve? Would they really starve, or would the situation get really dire and then they they get the the regime change and we'd bring in the aid? Hmm? It would have been a mess, but it would have been. Put it this way: in my opinion, it would have been a mess from a humanitarian point of view, but in 94, it would have been less of a mess mm-hmm. than it would be now if right. the regime were to collapse tomorrow. So this is yeah. the same harsh choices that you face in war. During the Korean War, because in the life, North Korean in army life. was so... Every, in everywhere li- in, in life. life. Yes. Everywhere in life, in life we face these kind of choices, good. right? We We have to be courageous in everything that we do because if we aren't there will be consequences this is you know throughout and this is you know what i'm saying we could do this angle on the show but you're you're saying most definitely because we did not take the steps that we had the opportunity to take in the 90s as hard as those would have been we've now created the situation that we're facing today the u.s has the same had the same um uh, hell or high water thing uh, during the Korean War. So the Korean War w- went mm-hmm. on for so long because mm-hmm. they made a decision not to drop another nuclear bomb right after Japan. So uh, mm-hmm. 1945 in Japan and then 1950 to 1953 Korean War. They made a decision mm-hmm. not to do that because it had been a shock and millions of people had died and so on and so on and so forth. Now, there are memories of U.S. generals that fought in, in the uh, uh, North Korean War, in the Korean War, uh, and and they clearly said, "Well, had we dropped one bomb, we would have killed two million people, but the war would have been over." But people mm-hmm. couldn't stomach that, so we went on for three years and we killed four million people, 
but little by little people can take it. So the media, public opinion, and uh, yeah, that's, so that's bravery in a way and, and not doing mm -hmm. the right thing. You, you will have uh, uh, casualties and, and in that kind of situation in a war. Uh, you just have to make a choice whether you want to kill a lot of people in one take or even more people little by little. Well, and, and, and moreover, you know, I don't, I don't know, um, Jean-Luc, I don't know how much you're familiar with objectivism as applied to policy in war, right? But it's not just the four million people, but how many people on our side, on the, on the innocent side versus the aggressors. So, you know, what a, a proper theory of war would tell you to do is that you can do whatever is necessary to eliminate that threat with minimal loss of life on your side. Yes, they're going to be, you know, so-called innocent civilians on, on the other side who die, but insofar as any of them are innocent, and often some of them are, the deaths are the result of the aggressor, you know, in, in, in that case. So, yeah. you know, not only was it 4 million dragged out over a longer period of time, but many more on our side and on our allies, side had, had to yeah, perish, which wouldn't have happened eternal, if we dropped the bomb, right? Well, yeah, I mean, of course, uh, if, if, if generals and politicians could apply objectivism uh, to everything in life, we wouldn't have 99% of the problems <laughs> that we have now. But a lot of people don't, don't the average folk, I, I think, can't take it. Uh, it's too. It's. Uh, I. I don't think the masses are pre are prepared for that. <laughs> so, so anyway, with with Korea, the problem that you have now is that the country is completely dependent on aid. If you mm -hmm. withdraw aid, you will cause. Uh, it's not that you will cause. You will accelerate the causes that are inherent to North Korea, uh, and uh, and you. That will lead to a lot of people dying from starvation, possibly a regime collapse and a huge flow of refugees either to China or if they can to the south. And so a gigantic humanitarian crisis. That's what everyone wants to avoid. Mm -hmm. and, and then, and then moreover, well, and then, we, we, didn't, we didn't even ask you this question. I mean, we could think of this as a, as a huge humanitarian crisis. But what do you think of the military threat that's currently posed by North Korea? Is it significantly worse than before, or is everything that you're seeing in the news, including, you know, the the shooting of a missile over Japan, is is this just more of the same bluster and everything else, and you don't see it as posing that much more of a, a threat to the United States? Uh, if you follow North Korea, the news is that. Is, this is really not no news. Uh, this is the third or fourth missile that they shoot over Japan. The first ones being, I think, 98, 2006, and 2009. Uh, they're just getting better. The problem is when you let a problem fester for so long, it, it, when you give them the chance to make more and more tests, well, guess what? They get better. Right. Um, right. <laughs> That's what they've been doing. It's nothing new, simply because if you follow North Korean politics, and this is another problem, Americans, Europeans too, but Americans particularly, they never bother to read or take North Korea seriously. So they don't read North Korean news, they don't learn the language, they don't even read the English language news that they publish, they don't 
pay attention to what their leaders say. Uh, they don't take it as a serious com country. They take it as a joke. Until mm -hmm. the day they fire a missile and then they wake up and say, uh-oh. <laughs> uh, right. In, in the, there's every year, beginning of the year, on New Year, the leader of North, of North Korea, so there was Kim Jong-un first, then Kim Jong-un, and then Kim Jong-un, they give a New Year speech. That speech dictates the line. They tell you exactly what they're going to do, exactly what the priorities of the party are, and so on and so forth. They stated clearly that this was the year in which they would have developed an ICBM te uh, the ICBM technology. They would have made more tests. They put it on black and white. They couldn't possibly be clearer and more open about their aims. The problem is nobody listens to them. Mm, it's, yes. I, I, it's, a little bit, it's a little bit the same thing that happens with Islamic terrorists. Uh, you have guys that pledge allegiance to ISIS, read the Quran back to front, mm -hmm. make videos to, re to record their allegiance to ISIS, they shout Allah Akbar, they, 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 they just make it extremely clear why they're doing it, and when you open the new newspaper, it's motives unclear. <laughs> right. It's just you don't want to see the reason. That's, that's the thing. People so, are evading it. Yeah. So, so we've got, on the one hand, a humanitarian, huge humanitarian crisis waiting to happen, one that could affect the stability of our allies in the South, notwithstanding a whole bunch of people dying, which we would like to avoid if we can, within North Korea. Uh, then on the military front, you say it's not particularly you know, that much more of a drastic change right now in terms of the danger posed to us by North Korea. But sure enough, we are letting them continue to test and gradually over time they're going to get better. And at a certain point, they will pose this danger. So let me put this question to you, Jean-Luc. If, if we put you as an advisor to our tweeter in chief right now, what would you tell him to do? What is the way to achieve... I, essentially, what needs to happen is some sort of regime change with as little loss of life as as possible. How could we get that done? Right now, right now there are no more good, even remotely good solutions. You have, as one of the specialists says, uh, lousy options. That's all you have got now. Um, you can choose the least lousy option, but it will still be a lousy option. Now, what, uh, what about though, you, you, you talk about in um, in this article, and I, and you've mentioned on the show last time that there's a think tank that had put out an article to the effect that there are other families within North Korea. Oh, that's a that's a professor in the U.S. actually, not right. a think tank. That is a specialist that writes on foreign policy and and, and it's Professor Iverson. Um, so he had this proposal, which if we lived in a different era, say the 1970s, even the 1980s, probably could work. So the proposal, uh, briefly put it, was to bribe uh, the top 10 or 12 North Korean families that would guarantee mm -hmm. to you know, oust the Kim family, and also, to, uh, well, bribe, yeah, pay the top ranks of the military and that would in turn convince the army and the navy to put down their guns, let South Korean troops in, 
and start a slow, gradual process of uh, transfer of power. Right. The problem is uh, because North Korea has become the monster, the ultimate brutal violator of human rights, this is seen as morally unacceptable. You could do this sort of bribing with Iran, with any other, so to speak, renegade or um, country or failed state. You could do that with Somalia if they posed such a threat, but they don't. But with North Korea, because it's so demonized, when it really isn't worse than other countries, because it's so demonized, it's impossible now for us Okay, okay. So you're saying you're saying it's politically not feasible and it it's certainly not politically feasible when we have our, our tweeter in chief, you know, talking about how bad they are and stuff, right? Is that it? Uh yeah, well Trump doesn't know much about North Korea and the very few people that could help him are have been fired, so good luck to him. Uh I don't have many hopes left for this administration. So so you think that that particular solution, which it, it could be viable if if it was politically accepted here in the United States, if if we were willing to implement that here in U.S., do you think that could succeed in North Korea? It's not just the United States. You would have – that's the problem. First, that would have to pass through, uh, through the uh, – in the United States. Second, once the United States – who's in charge in the United States at that time – is thoroughly convinced of it. They would have to work to get the help of China, Russia, and South Korea to do it because it, it needs a network of all the states that are involved for this to happen. And the problem is technically it's feasible. The money is there and there are channels open between South Korea and China to contact these families. That's what this Professor Iverson bases his argument on. Mm-hmm. The problem is, uh, that's my criticism, morally this will never pass because you have the UN, because you have a regime of human rights, because somebody who is the ultimate evil, Kim Jong-un is pretty much as bad as Hitler right now. You cannot pardon or let go or bribe or pay Hitler and his friends. You just don't do it. It's morally unacceptable. That's the problem. Well, but this is the thing. Are these other families and stuff really the friends of of Hitler, or are they uh, actually potentially allies for a real regime change and and a, you know an actual change from communism to a free society? That is a very good question. Uh, but they're not communists. They're just oligarchs. In a way, mm-hmm. but so the trend in North Korean studies now is to get as much information about these nouveau rich, uh, these new rich people that have emerged, these new families that sort of do power sharing with the Kim family. So okay. people that rule the black markets and people that uh, occupy the highest ranks of the military. Uh, these are the most important subjects of North Korean studies now. They are very, very hard to access, though, because the defectors in the South have no knowledge of them. Uh, you cannot go to North Korea and talk to them. That's just not going to happen. Right. The only people that have some kind of contact with them are 
the humanitarian practitioners that work in, in the DPRK, but they will never ever uh, deal with them because they just do apolitical work. They don't mean right. the politics. They don't. They just do the humanitarian work, and they and they don't want to lose access to the country. That's another thing. So okay. So, so but in your in your in your view, if if you could if you could make this work, this would be the optimal solution given the fact that we've gotten ourselves into this mess in the first place by not dealing with the situation properly in uh, the past, right? No, my optimal solution would be different, but it's, it, it, it involves even more actors, and that's the problem. My optimal solution would be to redesign the current aid regime to the DPRK, because the way it is designed now, it will keep the country going forever, unless they mm-hmm. do something incredibly stupid, like really firing a missile to Guam, which they probably won't, because they're not crazy. So unless they do something that stupid, the current balance of aid and sanctions, that country can go on for another 50 years. Okay. Which uh, means so the, the, more the, uh, opportunities yeah. for the news to get us all panicked and stuff like that, right? Yeah, but they don't really want to harm the U.S. They just want the U.S. out of the peninsula. That's the thing. Uh, the, um, the American people should remember that Kim Jong-un that North Koreans don't care about nuking Alaska or Texas. What did they gain from it? Nothing. They want American troops out of Korea. The problem. Well, because is, they they want to they want to take over then South Korea though, right? Yeah, but then yeah. again, that is a national problem. the The problem at the very beginning, if we go back to the Korean War, is that the U.S. did in fact partition the country in two. That was not a good thing to do. Mm. Uh, Korea was a unified country for centuries before falling under the Japanese Empire during World War II. The problem is that at the end of World War II, the U.S. wanted to have some influence in the area, and they had no idea what Korea was, so they very arbitrarily decided, well, well, let's split this, you know, peninsula in two. We'll take the south, and the Russians can t- take the north. And then, in due time, right. that was the sentence. In due time, sure. they'll have free elections, and blah blah blah, and that never happened. Yeah. So here we are, because we compromised yeah, so, with so, we yeah, we but, co- we compromised with communism. We didn't eliminate the threat in the various times that we got to you. So, so how would you restructure the aid so that it would... Well, the problem with aid now, and this is a problem for, for everyone that deals with uh, so-called failed states or um, uh, problematic states, uh, is that aid is supposed to be in its current form apolitical. So if you read the framework that guides the operations of the entire UN, all the agencies, uh, if you go to, the, to what they address as being the root causes of problems in North Korea. The three root causes of problem in North Korea, according to the UN, are climate change, lack of resources, like tell me something I don't know, and customs mm-hmm. and traditions. Literally, that's what it's written there. That's what they operate on. I mean, mm-hmm. if you speak 
with people that work in the end. Off the record, they will tell you, oh, of course, the, the problem is political. They have destroyed right. their own country. Yes. Socialism doesn't work. <laughs> but officially, they do not interfere with domestic politics. So climate change is the cause. And, you know, how are you going to solve that? No. So, you so what you would do, would you, would you then say you would, you would tie aid to political change? That's, yeah, that's a discourse that needs to happen at some point. The, the entire top level of, of the UN and that needs to change. So the, the, the global agenda that, that these international organizations, these global institutions are enforcing now is a very much progressive sort of utopian agenda whereby you address climate change, uh, gender gaps, and a few other things, and you solve all the problems of the planet, which clearly is unrealistic. Right. To say to you. Right. The, so, but, but, so but if you read it's, the it's document, the same, that's what it's they the enforce. same problem, right? It's the same problem of, as we put it in you know philosophical terms, altruism, the idea of others above self. That yeah, you know, it's, yeah, it, yeah. it's manifested in this political ideal of, of socialism, and all of these aid agencies are at the very least tolerating socialism. And so we are perpetuating the problem by allowing this aid to flow to North Korea in a way that doesn't tie the aid to, you know, a move towards freedom. Yeah. On a philosophical level. Yeah. The problem is that uh, nobody wants to teach them how to fish. They still prefer giving them fish every day. That makes them dependent and unable to prosper on their own. That's the main. That's at the philosophical core. That's that's what the problem is. Of course. Well, and and potentially need- eventually a danger to to us, right? So um, why why don't they hire you? Why doesn't Trump hire you? <laughs> because uh, anybody who is even remotely conservative, let alone. Uh, dealing with objectivism, I don't believe, uh, unless they lie, which I'm not going to, uh, you will never find a job in any of the organization. This, the entire global movement is staffed by, at best, liberals, at best. Uh, most likely uh, uh, people that have shared similar views to Antifa, but, you know, they just wear, wear suit and tie, but, you know, um, so, so they, they, they really are, think that the problem. Go ahead. Yes, go on. No, you said they no, really they think that really the problem. That, that the problem is is just climate change or gender pay gap. That's the only thing that uh, they care about. So, I know, are, you're gonna you're you're gonna be writing a couple articles uh, soon that are gonna be out there that and people could follow you on Twitter <sighs> and find you and, and be. try I, to spread am, better ideas. Yeah. I am yeah. I'm overdue on the on those things, but the, the is uh, in in my defense the PhD has slowed me down. So, so one is for Iron News, which uh, deals with humanitarian news, and of course I have um, different views, but I report on, on North Korea and something that is going to happen quite soon, which is a new um, crisis in the provision of food because while they were launching all the missile, what they were doing was covering an emergency that is coming again because they had a terrible drought this summer mm-hmm. and they're going to have floods now because this is typically a typhoon season. 
and already news has come out that they don't have enough food even to feed the army. So that's going to cause some unrest. So the more they have these kind of problems, the more they will intensify the nuclear test because they need something to show for with the, with the population to tell them that they, their sacrifices are not in vain. So, that's so, you, one so you're going to be writing about this and then hopefully tying your solution to that article? about this. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and, and then another article which I wanted to publish with American Renaissance, which deals up, uh, with the nationalist features of politics in North and South Korea. And that's more a perspective of political philosophy. Okay. Well, I urge everybody to go ahead and, and follow you, and I hope you're able to get these articles out and finish your dissertation on time and, and be done with that because I've, I've been there. Uh, so I wish you the best and I do thank you for taking time this evening to, to speak with us and thank you, you know let, let, us, let us know not to completely panic and, and freak out and go endorse a big old military solution right now, right? No, no, there, there, there is no need to. I don't think that there's a, a real threat in the United States. The problem is I uh, there are no good solution at this time. So somebody will have to pay some money and some people will eventually uh, suffer in Korea at some point. So that's out of the question. The reality of it. Okay. Well, thanks very much again, Jean-Luca. And we'll, we'll speak again. Okay, everyone. I I went a little bit long there. I was going to go ahead and do a break a bit earlier. I'm going to give you a little musical interlude and I will be back. We're going to, again, continue on with this theme the consequences of cowardice. We saw it with respect to North Korea, and then we're going to talk about what it's going to mean with Antifa in, a, in just a couple minutes. Those of you who listen live, you hear only little musical interludes, but if you're listening on the podcast, you've heard word from a couple sponsors, please do uh, you know, support the sponsors and, and look on it as a positive development that I'm doing this. I'm going to be bringing you, as I said, three days a week starting September 6th effectively, but next week because it's Labor Day, I'm only going to get two days. Wednesday and Friday next week, and then we're going to be going three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and part of that is going to be doing a little bit of advertising. It's still going to be much less in terms of advertising than you'll hear on terrestrial radio or a number of the online networks, so don't worry. It's not going to be overwhelming, but I need to take those little breaks and see what we can do with this show here, so thanks, everyone, for that, and thanks, Jean-Luca, again, for joining us and coming back, especially when it's evening and you get tired. I know that I'm one of those early morning people myself. So go back over to the blog at don'tletitgo.com and continuing on with this theme of the consequences of cowardice, we can see what the failure to deal properly with Antifa is already starting 
to yield. Some people were actually pretty excited about this. We've got the Washington Post actually now starting to cover Antifa objectively. And let me go ahead and get that article up on my phone here because it's so funny. I have a subscription, thanks to those of you who support the show, I have a subscription to Washington Post, but I have the link in terms of my subscription on the phone, and it's not transferring to the computer. And why, why is not Apple working the way it's supposed to, which is that if I set up a Safari-suggested default password on my phone, it should just seamlessly transfer over to my Safari browser on my computer but alas, that has not happened. So the article from Washington Post, black-clad Antifa members attacked peaceful right-wing demonstrators in Berkeley, published excuse me, August 28th, so just a couple days ago. Their faces hidden behind black bandanas and hoodies. About 100 anarchists and Antifa, anti-fascist members, barreled into a protest Sunday afternoon in Berkeley's Martin Luther King Jr. Civic Center Park. Jumping over plastic and concrete barriers, the group melted into the larger crowd of around 2,000 that had marched peacefully throughout the sunny afternoon for a rally against hate gathering. Now, I understand that it wasn't just a rally against hate gathering, but it was also a, uh, you know, anti-communist gathering. Anyway, shortly after violence began to flare, a pepper spray wielding Trump supporter, probably using his self-defense, I would assume, was smacked to the ground with homemade shields. And as I understand, the homemade shields had something written on them. We'll talk about that in a bit. Another was attacked by five black-clad Antifa members, each windmilling kicks and punches into a man desperately trying to protect himself. A conservative group leader retreated for safety behind a line of riot police as marchers chucked water bottles, shot off pepper spray, and screamed, fascists go home. All told, the Associated Press reported at least five individuals were attacked. An AP reporter witnessed the assault. So now we have the news media waking up to the reality of violence by Antifa, by these leftists. If you remember when I was talking about the aftermath of Charlottesville, although the death in Charlottesville was caused by the neo-Nazi who, I can't even fathom this, drove a car into the right-wing demonstrators, I mean, excuse me, the left-wing demonstrators, um, although the death was caused by you know, the right-wing in, in that particular situation, it, it could have just as easily been caused by Antifa. And in fact, the aftermath of Charlottesville may have emboldened Antifa to become violent like this. But now we've got the media at least waking up to the reality. The problem then is the reaction from the politicians. So this is where we get to the next horrible story on the program notes, which is this. We have a mayor of Berkeley. If you remember last week, I talked about some events that are coming up at UC Berkeley in September. As I understand, there are going to be three conservative speakers scheduled to speak there. I know that it's Ben Shapiro, Milo Yiannopoulos, but also Ann Coulter scheduled to speak at UC Berkeley. One problem with the events that we could talk about, certainly, is that 
they uh, are charging the conservative clubs who are hosting Shapiro and Coulter and Yiannopoulos, charging them a huge, quote, security fee that isn't, of course, being charged to the left-wing organizations. Why? Because they don't anticipate the security needs for the left-wing as much as they do for the right-wing, right? There's, you know, the Antifa people are coming out in force whenever there's a right-wing speaker and they're trying to shut it down. $15,000 for the Shapiro event is what I've heard. $15,000 is a security fee and people are talking, you know, it's a poll tax, it's, you know, not it, it's not free speech anymore when you're having to pay an extra fee depending on the viewpoint that you are espousing. So that's one problem. But here's an even bigger problem. Hot air article that I've got in the program notes. The Berkeley mayor, the mayor of Berkeley, his name is Jesse what? I'm not even sure exactly how to pronounce his name. Arguin, maybe? A-R-R-E-G-U-I-N. He has said that if the school, if UC Berkeley doesn't shut down the right-wing speakers next month, Antifa will riot. Now, that's just not a prediction. It's also, he says, that as a consequence of this, he believes that Berkeley should cancel the events. So let me go ahead and read you the quotation from somebody who is the mayor of a city in United States in the 21st century. You know, we fought a revolution so that we could have a First Amendment within our Bill of Rights, freedom of expression, etc. Here's a mayor in our country, 21st century. Quote, I don't want Berkeley being used as a punching bag. That sounds catchy, right? Um, he says, I'm very concerned about Milo Yiannopoulos and Ann Coulter and some of the other right-wing speakers coming to the Berkeley campus because it's just a target for the black bloc to come out and commit mayhem on the Berkeley campus and have that potentially spill out on the street, end quote. Now, what you're seeing here, right, is, is potentially that part of the agenda of the left-wing media when they're talking about the violent consequences is maybe some of the left-wing media is seeing this as an opportunity to give fuel to mayors like this Jesse Arquin at Berkeley uh, that they will, you know, suggest the cancellation of these events. Now, what about freedom of expression? Yes, he is a mayor in the United States of America where we have a First Amendment that is still, last I checked, being robustly held, upheld by the Supreme Court in our country. What does he say about freedom of expression? He says, quote, I obviously believe in freedom of, of speech, but there is a line. Oh, I love that but, you know, free speech, but he says there is a line between freedom of speech and then posing a risk to public safety, the mayor said. Continuing, he says, that is where we have to be very careful that while protecting people's free speech rights, we are not putting our citizens in a potentially dangerous situation and costing the city hundreds of thousands of dollars fixing the windows of businesses, end quote. Okay, now, first of all, 
there is a line between freedom of speech and posing a risk to public safety. It is the old common law doctrine of incitement to violence, or, you know, if you go back to the historic phrase that you cannot shout fire in a crowded theater when there is no fire. That's where the line is drawn, Mayor Aragorn. It is not because you don't want to be bothered to defend the right wing. Somebody, uh, Tim in the chat room, Tim Peck in the chat room is saying that he heard that the mayor of Berkeley is a member of the Antifa Facebook page. I don't know if that's true. I haven't heard it at all. Um, but it'd be useful to know if that was actually true. What the, you know, one question that I posed on Twitter earlier is, you know, do we have viewpoint neutrality among the people who are supposed to be protecting our rights? Because you cannot have selective protection for freedom of expression based on viewpoint simply because Antifa is out there. And, you know, when, when he talks about the fact, oh, you know, we're, we're protecting your safety, Maybe you're protecting safety in the very short term, but you are taking what I would say is the cowardly way out. Um, you know, the, the, the brave way to do this is to go ahead and actually put the police out there in force and protect the windows of the businesses, right? You know, you talk, oh, the city is going to be cost hundreds of thousands of dollars fixing the windows of businesses. Not if you actually enforce the law, Mayor. Not if you actually put the police out there in force and and do your job. Um, This is really scary because what he's doing is he's telling Berkeley, saying, give in to the heckler's veto. And it's not just a matter of security on the Berkeley campus and Berkeley charging a poll tax to Ben Shapiro $15,000, which is outrageous enough that there's this extra security fee that the campus, which is supposed to provide security equally for everybody on the campus, that they're charging this extra security fee only to the right-wing speakers. But if they're doing that, they're doing it potentially in part because we have the mayor of Berkeley defaulting on his job to protect citizens. So maybe Berkeley, you know, UC Berkeley is caught in a bind because you have this mayor here who's saying in effect, well, the only solution is either cancel the event or boy, there's going to be hundreds of thousands of dollars of damage in Berkeley because, you know, the police just aren't going to do anything to stop this. All they would have to do there and make examples, right? First of all, don't allow these people to go around with masks, right? Don't let them to show up. Don't let them show up with masks and have all this anonymity. Arrest them. Do your job. If you actually made examples of a few of them and made them really suffer the consequences, then this would stop. One thing I was, you know, talking about there, on, it's pretty easy to get it sucked into the discussion on Twitter. Right now, as it stands right now, the lack of response to Antifa is a matter of will. They have a lack of will. Mayors like this Jesse Arguin over at Berkeley, they lack the will to stop Antifa, to do what needs to be done to stop Antifa. Yes, it would require some bravery, particularly on the part of the police who, I mean, the police are beleaguered as it is, but 
they would go out there and they would do their job if the mayor told them to. They need to be brave. They need to stand up on principle for freedom of expression because if they don't do it now, then what is Antifa going to be threatening next week, next month, next year? Are we even going to, you know, have control over our cities anymore? Or, is it, you know, is it going to be like some cities in London, certain places in London or certain places in France, Sharia-controlled zones where if you're not a Muslim, you don't dare go maybe at, at least at certain hours of the day or don't walk your dog in certain places because, of course, they hate dogs and Islam and all of this. Are there going to be Antifa-controlled zones in our cities, particularly our left-wing cities, because the police just can't be bothered to protect you if you're a right-winger of, of some kind. This is where we're going if we do not have the courage. And so, you know, then my question is about some of the media coverage. You see the news article from the Washington Post. You see that the Associated you know, Press is actually covering objectively the damage done by Antifa. Are they doing this because they are trying to say, yes, we need to stop them, we need the police to do their job in the cities, or is the liberal media on the side of mayors like this UC Berkeley mayor uh, saying, oh, you know, we believe in freedom of expression, but it's just too dangerous out there, you know? We just don't want to confront this, and, and we want to protect everybody, and we don't want to cause all the hundreds of thousands of dollars of damages to, to business, to business. Yeah, yeah, that's it, business. That's the thing that I'm worried about. But, you know, this idea that we have a, a mayor in the United States who is encouraging that UC Berkeley give in to the heckler's veto, as, as it's called. A lot of people are now calling it the rioter's veto because it's not just the heckler that they'd be giving into now it's the the rioter and of course a riot is much more of a threat but what's the alternative you know and and this is where i got retweeted by ben shapiro earlier this morning if the mayor of berkeley is doing this if the mayor of the of berkeley is urging that uc berkeley give in to the heckler's veto give the heckler's veto even more power then it is imperative that these events take place exactly as scheduled. It is imperative that there is adequate security. It is imperative that Antifa be made to suffer the consequences if they initiate force against fully speaking or demonstrating right-wingers. So uh, it, it's going to be crucial that we monitor what happens. I'm glad I'm going three days a week because we're going to have more time to actually talk about what happens I don't know exactly the dates of these events. Now I'm going to have to go look and see what these dates are because I'm going to be wanting to, you know, monitor almost in real time what go what goes on in these events. But I sure hope and you know if you want to if you want to join in putting pressure the guys out there on Twitter. I've been tweeting him a little bit this mayor and questioning whether he is viewpoint neutral. As a mayor in the United States of America, I swear he must be having to say that he pledges to uphold the Constitution of the United States in addition to whatever the, you know, horrible left-wing charter of the city of Berkeley must look like and everything else, he must have sworn to uphold our First Amendment. And certainly we have an, an analogy here in California. This is the forefront of 
you know, the, the battle as I see it. We cannot give in to the heckler's veto. We have to chastise, criticize, ridicule any local official like this guy who is urging that we give in to the heckler's veto, that we yield for free speech. Because, again, you may think in the short term you're saving yourself some trouble, but in the long term you are just causing yourself uh, even more pain and, you know, in, in the long term, we need to have freedom of expression if we're ever going to change the culture. This guy wants to shut down those opinions, particularly from Shapiro. He doesn't even bother to mention, right? I, I would say of those three, the one who's most worth listening to is the one that the mayor doesn't bother to mention, which is Shapiro. I've got disagreements with him. I'll talk about it uh, in in a little bit, but Shapiro is is the best. Tim has dropped a couple links here into the chat room. We've got a tweet, a Breitbart. Oh, there's a Breitbart article saying that the Berkeley mayor is a member of the Antifa Facebook group that organized the riots. Now, did he join the group just to keep a tab on it? I think he actually even said something about how there's some sort of a terrorist group or something. Um, Again, are they talking about the danger of this group? just so that they can rationalize their decision, their recommendation to shut down these free speech events? Or, you know, are they actually just innocently concerned about the danger of these groups? That's something that I would like to know. I suspect some of the latter, that they want to have an excuse to do what they think is easier is expedient they don't want to be brave and actually uphold you know a principle of our constitutional republic the principle of freedom of expression which is so important you know if you cannot speak freely you cannot think freely and act freely on your own judgment if you can't act on your own judgment you can't live as as a human being you know, and as I said, kind of more broadly, if you are engaged in any sort of movement to change the culture, which we need to do. I mean, we'll listen to Jean-Luca in the last segment. Uh, he talks about effectively a lack of belief and a lack of will in the proper type of solution for North Korea. Uh, there's a lack of belief and there's a lack of will with respect to the climate change debate, with respect to any of the political debates, getting rid of Obamacare. We need to be able to change the culture, and we can't do this unless we can have right-wing ideas expressed, or at least non-leftist, non-communist ideas expressed out there. If people want to call in and talk about this or anything else, the number to do so is 760-888-5817. There's one more article that I want to take a quick look at with respect to this Antifa problem. And it is another article from the Washington Post. So let me just bring up my phone here really quick. This is an opinion piece. The headline is, yes, Antifa is the moral equivalent of neo-Nazis. And it's written by Mark Thiessen, I believe is the way that you pronounce the name, published today, just, just this morning. And he's a little bit more colorful in the description of what went on in Berkeley. He says, uh, these neo-communist Antifa thugs attacked peaceful protesters at a no Marxism in America rally. So see how the, you know, you get the actual name of the rally, no Marxism in America versus anti-hate 
which is you know so milk toast sounding anti hate who, who could be against that no marxism in america that just shows you that they were actually expressing a definite opinion so the antifa come they were wielding sticks and pepper spray they were beating people with homemade shields that read he says i kid you not no hate so you, no hate and you're beating the people with your shield that says no hate no hate but violence that's fine one peaceful protester washington post reports attacked by five black clad antifa members etc members of the berkeley college republicans were then stalked by antifa goons who followed them to a gas station and demanded that they get the you know what out of their car warning quote We are real hungry for supremacists, and there is more of us. Now listen to this. The organizer of the anti-Marxism protest is is not a white supremacist. Amber Cummings is a self-described, quote, transsexual female who embraces diversity, end quote, and had announced on Facebook that, quote, any racist groups like the KKK and neo-Nazis are not welcome, end quote. The protest was needed, Cummings said. Why? Because, quote, Berkeley is a ground zero for the Marxist movement, end quote. Oh, you think so when its, na- its mayor is a member of Antifa? As if to prove Cummings' point, the Antifa movement responded with jackboots and clubs because their definition of fascist is not just neo-Nazis, but anyone who opposes their totalitarian worldview. And that's the truth. They have a communist or anarchist totalitarian worldview. And if you oppose them, then you are, according to them, by definition, fascist. And as Thiessen goes on to explain, uh, they are justified in using violence against you as well. They believe that physical violence is, quote, both ethically justifiable and strategically effective. And this is according to Mark Bray. He's a Dartmouth lecturer who has defended Antifa's violent tactics. And of course, then it goes on to talk about the fact that communism, there are so many apologists for communism in this country, of course, and includes the New York Times. And he mentions the article that I was spoofing on a couple weeks ago. New York Times published an opinion piece talking about how sex under communism or socialism is so much better than sex in a free country. They, they just have no shame at all. They completely um, unapologetically are shills for communism over at the New York Times. They aren't violent. They're not advocating violence explicitly, but they are part of this in, in our country, this sympathy for communism, which is resulting in mayors like we see at Berkeley unwilling to stand up to these thugs. So what, what do we need to do? We have to have the courage. There's a lot of us, for instance, if you're local in the UC Berkeley area, I would urge you to go and attend. Bring something to defend yourself, perhaps. You might actually need something to defend yourself. But if enough people in enough numbers show up there and are peaceful and are only retaliating if the Antifa thugs come and try to attack you, we can send a message 
to Antifa and say that violence used to shut down speech in United States of America, particularly in the 21st century, is not going to be tolerated. If we don't have the courage to do this now, um, if we aren't brave enough to do this now, then we will have consequences. You know, I, I was going to say, you know, as a phrase, half joking, what does a nuclear Antifa look like, right? We have a nuclear North Korea because of the defaults of, you know, not, you, you know, choosing the brave option at the num- different times that we've had in, in the past, you know, oh, well, we want to make a compromise with the Russians. So we divide up Korea into North and South and give the communists control of North Korea didn't do what needed to be done in the nineties. There was an option that wasn't great because as Jean-Luc explained, there would have been deaths that resulted, but we didn't take and make the difficult choices then. And we're suffering the consequences now because the choices that we have on the table look even less good. If we aren't brave enough now in dealing with Antifa and dealing with people like the Berkeley mayor, standing up to him, ridiculing him, calling him out We've got a lot worse consequences coming down the road. Like I said, Antifa-controlled areas in some of our cities in our country, I don't know that that's out of the question in the pretty near future if we don't take care of this properly. So we need to to watch this. We need to be brave. People who are in the area, I would urge you, if you are non-leftist, if you want to fight everything that Antifa stands for, if you are against everything that Antifa stands for, which is the implementation of communism by force if necessary, the advocacy of communism by force if necessary, countering anybody who opposes their communist anarchist viewpoint as fascists, then I would I would go out there. I would support Elise Shapiro. Maybe you don't like Milo. Maybe you don't like Ann Coulter, but I would even go to those events if I live locally, try to go out there and and give a show of of support to these people. Because if we don't do it, we don't do it now, it's only going to get worse. So let me take a quick little musical interlude, and I'll be back in a second. We're going to wrap up this show. I'm going to talk a little bit about Ben Shapiro and actually talk about where I do disagree with him as well. Again, those of you who are listening live, you get just brief little musical interludes. Those of you who get the podcast on, in the recorded form, you're going to have some ads in there. But do be tolerant and supportive, if so inclined, of the sponsors because they make the show possible. So thanks, everyone, for, for sticking around here, have, having the courage to deal with this threat. Of course, you can think about consequences of cowardice in your own life as well, and you can think about it in negative terms, and this is one thing that I really wanted to point out here towards the end, is bravery, having bravery, having the courage to 
take on a challenge is, is not something that we only have in the face of tragedy. Another thing that, you know, Ben Shapiro talks about it in this article that I linked to in the program notes, Hurricane Harvey's men, women, and children. And in particular, he talks about the role of men as physical protectors in our culture and how you can see that in the face of a crisis like Hurricane Harvey. Courage is not something that you have only in the face of crisis, though. Bravery is not something that you have only in the face of crisis. Bravery is something that you can also exhibit in service of the positive. And to that end, what I've done in the program notes as well is I've given you a link to a more positively framed article involving courage and bravery headline, No Regrets, How to Make Big and Scary Decisions. This is from a friend of mine. She's been a friend on Facebook and follower on social media and back and forth we've exchanged, but I've actually never met her in person, even though she's in the Southern California area, which is crazy because I've met Facebook friends halfway around the world, but I haven't met her yet. I would like to. Her name's Halele and maybe Azule is how you pronounce her last name. I don't even know because I have not met her in person, but she has this nice little piece about a framework that you can use when you're thinking about big and scary decisions and, you know, whenever you have a big decision to make, what university to go to, do you pursue this career path versus that? Do you dive into a certain relationship? Do you move to a certain city? Whatever it is, um, there's pros and cons that seem sort of incommensurate and people make big long lists and do all these other things. But she gives you this question to ask yourself that, helps to make it clearer, but it also involves whenever you're going to go ahead and make a big, scary decision, and it involves some bravery to actually just make that decision, whichever way you end up going, deciding to pursue a value that is positive as well. So that being said, you know, think about the areas also in your personal life. You know that if there is something negative in your life, that if you put off doing the brave thing that you know that you need to do. Things are only going to get worse. You know what the consequences of cowardice are. Similarly, if you fail to exhibit the bravery that you need or the courage that you need to chase a dream, you can know what the consequences are for that. And that's what Halele is talking about in her blog post there. So check that out. In terms of Hurricane Harvey, I think you saw at the top of the program notes, if you've gone over to the blog, that I give you a link to a Vox piece that tells you how to donate if you can, if you have money to spare. Of course, I, I like you to support my show as well, but in this particular situation, it is urgent. They need a, a pile of help. The most heart-wrenching story that I've heard, there's a number of people who, who have uh, died in you know, due to the effects of this hurricane. But the worst story I heard was that there was a toddler who they found, um, she was hanging on, she was clutching the body of her drowned mother because her, um, her drowned mother was trying to take her to safety in the flood water. Her mother died, the child lived, but they found this toddler just clutching the body of, of her, her mother. So this is the sort of thing that has happened because of obviously absolutely no fault of any of these people. This is unprecedented. 
even if you say, okay, well, there was a lack of preparation on some of these people's part, it doesn't matter. These are horrible, horrible consequences these people are facing. So if you can donate, please do. Uh, there's a link, like I said, at the top. Uh, the easy method, which is American Red Cross, is apparently a fairly good option, but there's other options in the Vox article if you like things that have a higher charity rating, if you prefer to donate to those. Shapiro's article, Hurricane Harvey's uh, men, women, and children. And what he's talking about is, you know, and there's this iconic picture that you see at the top of it. There's a picture of a man in a baseball cap carefully carrying a woman through the water. The woman, in turn, holds a baby curled up on her chest. The picture struck a chord, he said, with many people because it seems so instinctively right the woman protecting her child, the man protecting the woman, carrying them all through danger. And Shapiro says, this is the vision of humanity that carries us through our darkest trials, men as protectors, women as guardians, children as innocents. And he says, and yet our society has devoted itself wholesale to the destruction of this image. First, men He says, the men that we look up to actually are protectors, but he says, all men, even those who aren't engaged in military combat or other dangerous professions like police today, uh, per se, all men everywhere, he says, must must strive to be sheepdogs. He says that always doesn't, doesn't always require violence. He says the sheepdog must be willing to do violence, but must also ensure protection of the flock against all manner of horror. So I would say, again, this includes speaking out he says that's the role of men in the social fabric that doesn't mean he says Shapiro kudos to Shapiro he says that doesn't mean that women can't participate in that task he says but a society of men who refuse to protect will be a society that collapses in short order yes you know one thing that you know the 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 fact that we have an initiation of force as a prohibition, right? A prohibition against the initiation of force. Rand writes that the, you know, the, the same morality that makes the initiation of force an evil makes the use of retaliatory force an imperative. So indeed, something must be done about North Korea, for example. We need to have a plan. We cannot cave and cower to a thug. We cannot cave and cower to the thugs that are Antifa. If we refuse to protect ourselves, and you can say, okay, well, it's the job of men first to protect us physically. But if women need to come in and help with that task as well, then women need to be up to the task, hopefully not kids. Some countries it's you know, necessary for the kids to even contribute and, and step into the physical defense of a country. But if we don't, Right. If we don't do what is necessary to protect ourselves against initiators of force, you know, other human beings who are initiating force against us. In this case, he's saying, you know, you have to come in and do what needs to be done in a in a hurricane. If if we don't, yes, society will collapse. And we have seen people rise to the occasion with respect to Hurricane Harvey. And and it is is wonderful. Continuing with Shapiro's piece, he says, what, uh, the vision of what it means to be a man has been shattered over the course of the last several decades. Now we're told that manhood no longer has a meaning 
or that it has so many different meanings that it's indistinguishable from other more malleable concepts. We've been informed by the feminist movement that the vision of man as protector is degrading to women, that women don't need protection, that women can be protectors just as men can, end quote. You know, what we've seen recently uh, from women who have attempted to meet the physical challenges that are required to become, for example, Navy SEALs or certain ranks of Marine officers, et cetera, that even though they're very, very tough and very, very strong women, they just can't do what the men can do physically. That's all there is to it. So there are certain situations in which physically, yes, you need to be defended or you need of course to have a gun and and know how to use it there's that option as well but in you know just in terms of, of physical capacity men are just default they're going they're going to be stronger there are differences between men and women anyway so he goes on to talk about transgender women can be men men can be women gender is malleable and etc and he's saying no you know if you look what happened here in Hurricane Harvey, this crisis has brought out that there really are differences between men and women and that men instinctively, when faced with such crises, are, you know, they're going to step up to the plate and they're going to do what needs to be done. And, and the fact that the country is responding to it also says something that people believe this as well. He talks about the woman. He says there's the woman in the picture holding her child. He wrote this before that story came out this morning about the, the toddler. He says, the traditional role of women has been the guardian of children. That doesn't mean that women shouldn't work far from it. It doesn't mean that female value lies only in the guardian of kids. Of course not. He says, but a vision of societal femininity that doesn't include guarding the innocence of children isn't a vision of femininity at all. All of humanity relies on motherhood, and the mother's role doesn't end at birth. He says, then, you know, the, the left is targeting this standard. Women are informed. He writes that children can take care of themselves, that self-fulfillment should take priority over care for children. Stay-at-home moms have been scoffed at. Women who believe in the sanctity of the unborn have been castigated. And he goes on to talk about abortion now. To be clear, I disagree with Shapiro about abortion. I would say that there are, uh, you know, a number of like abortions that take place that I would agree with Shapiro that they're immoral, but nonetheless, we should have the, the right to pursue them. If I get brave, maybe at some point I can take on Shapiro on abortion. But let me just say for now, in terms of rights in this country, a potential is not an actual. And I probably also disagree with Shapiro at certain stages of, of pregnancy that abortion would be entirely moral depending on a situation of a woman and how early, you know, early in the pregnancy you get it done and et cetera. Um, I know he was tweeting about the Iceland story, right? Iceland has nearly eliminated Down syndrome in that country. And Down syndrome is something where I would say, look, you can test for it very early and yeah, abortion I believe would be moral. It would be heart wrenching, but it would be moral in that situation. Probably wouldn't be heart wrenching when you really understand what what's involved. But it would be it wouldn't be easy. Let's say that you know I don't think for any woman who has an abortion that they say oh yeah oh goody walk in the park and everything. So I disagree with him on that. I also have a bit of a different take 
about you know the self-fulfillment taking priority over care for children if women aren't getting self-fulfillment solely from the care for children and they aren't pursuing other things to fulfill themselves then they're i don't believe that they're going to be good mothers for their children as well so it's not an either or that you're choosing self-fulfillment over there's certain stages in a child's life where spending more time with the child and and making sure that the child is is brought up and cared for properly is very fulfilling and very demanding and you don't necessarily have any bandwidth for much else but then at a certain point women have to go on and you know seek other sources of of self-fulfillment now maybe not maybe you say okay i'm also going to homeschool i've known of women who have homeschooled throughout the course of their child's education and found that to be challenging and fulfilling, maybe frustrating at times and everything else, but a full-time fulfilling job of educating in a rigorous way, you know, homeschool program. So I could see that as well. Whatever it is though, that fulfills the woman. What I do know is that if the woman isn't fulfilled one way or the other, she's not going to be great as, as a mother either. She's got to be happy. Otherwise, she's not going to be good at taking care of the kids. The children aren't going to be happy, et cetera. So that's my little disagreement with Shapiro. But I agree with him that we need not to attack the men in the culture. We need to acknowledge, yes, that men have a different role. And I would go further. I would say it's not just in in crisis that women often like to look up to men. Women like to admire men also for their persistence in achieving their goals, their achievement and everything else. So I would say men can be leaders in other contexts as well. We can continue the discussion over at the blog at don'tletitgo.com. So feel free to chime in there or on the various social media. I've got a piece of music over there for you to enjoy as well. And like I said, check out Haleli's article about facing tough decisions and exhibiting courage, right? Um, You've got to be brave because the consequences of cowardice are, are too dire. And that's in connection with the pursuit of positives as well, not just when you're facing the crisis of North Korea or Antifa or anything else. So thanks, everyone, for listening. I will talk to you next week when we start our new three-day-a-week schedule. It'll be two days next week. So I'll talk to you next Wednesday, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific. Take care.